All right, so apocalyptic literature, if you've been here before, we've gone through several genres of scripture over the years. So whether it's a Pauline epistle or last year we did prophetic texts, uh, this year we are doing um, apocalyptic literature. Now, one of the ways that we can remind ourselves or at least give ourselves some kind of bearing of, of where we're going, this, this morning won't be an answer to everything. And what I think people accidentally or maybe on purpose put into the text is they have their own grid of, I'll call it systematic theology, where they come at a text like the book of Revelation or the book of Daniel, and they already have in their mind what it must say according to what they've been taught before or what they've heard or what they've Googled. So I want us to take a step back from that and what other people might also add on to a text when they come to it is an understanding of biblical theology. So how the story of Scripture unfolds, where certain texts fit into the storyline of Scripture. Um, And those are both, obviously, systematic theology is a really good thing. Biblical theology is a really great thing. Um, But what we need to do when we come to texts is we should first work on what does the text actually say or what does the text actually expose to us. So you can actually find out a lot about what God says if you just read God's Word and you just study God's Word. So you don't have to have a library of a thousand books to really grasp how good God is and how kind He is to us by sending His Son to save us. It's right there in the text. So when you come to trouble in the text or you come to confusion in apocalyptic literature, remind yourself, always take a step back. What is the Bible saying? Read it slowly. Read it out loud. Have it read to you. And just patiently let God expose Himself to you through His Word. So... Um, with that being said, let's talk a little bit. I want to talk to you a little bit about apocalyptic literature in the form of an introduction. First, what in the world is apocalyptic literature? The definition that I and Ryan will use is by a man named John J. Collins. An apocalyptic literature, I don't know how to work this anymore, and it's mine. Apocalyptic literature is a genre of relevatory literature with a narrative framework. So it's revealed with the narrative framework in which a revelation is mediated by an otherworldly being to a human receiver, disclosing a transcendent reality. So it keeps, it keeps getting cooler as it goes on. Disclosing a transcendent reality, which is both temporal insofar as it sees eschatological salvation and spatial insofar as it involves other supernatural worlds or actions. So if you understand that, you don't need to be here. And if you have questions, this won't solve it ultimately. But so it's a genre of scripture that reveals, that is brought by revelation from otherworldly participants. So, so let me just break that down a little bit. It's a revelation to people, meaning it's an unveiling or it's a pulling back of a curtain. Oftentimes it's done within a narrative framework. So it's not just isolated, right? You can't just see the Wizard of Oz and only go to that scene where they pull back the curtain on, on the person who's supposed to be Oz and you, and you leave all the others out. It's, it's within a narrative framework. So if you're a student of this literature, you've got to give yourself to the study of, of what's before a text and what's after a text. Who, who are the characters? What is the setting? Where in the world is Daniel taking place? What in the world is Daniel doing when all this is taking place? Where is John as he receives this word? Um, but it's also disclosed, or it discloses a transcendent reality that is both temporal and spatial. So things that we can see almost in a horizontal sense in time and things that seem to come in and out from outside of us. So in other words, you'll begin to recognize this genre by the fact that it takes you to another world in reading it. But unlike most sci-fi movies, you don't just go to that other world when you're reading it. You're also firmly planted in the world that God has placed you in. So, so even explaining that, it's just unbelievable how this takes place. Ryan and I were talking, Ryan was telling me yesterday how 
how the genre of apocalyptic literature has ceased to exist. I'm probably stealing from his own lecture, but, but people don't write this today. And when you think about it, it's like, man, one, how, how can you write this kind of stuff without it being in many ways supernatural, without it being unveiled to you or, or given to you by an extraterrestrial uh, person or angel? And so finally, the, within this definition, uh, this genre is mediated by an otherworldly being. So in, in ways like an angel or in ways like the Lord himself or in ways like supernatural occurrences that happen outside the world. So, in short, biblical apocalyptic literature is literature about the ending of our age, which is an age characterized by conflict and replaced by peace. And it happens in ways that we don't immediately understand, nor would we immediately think this is how the story would end. So it, it happens in ways that might, in first look, seem peculiar, but the more we get into it, the more we see it, you just realize this is the way that it has to happen. So where is this in scripture? Within your outline, I'm at the point, don't know what number it is, but where is it in scripture? Uh, we see it definitely in Revelation, the book of Revelation. Some people say Revelations. There's only one great Revelation, one book. Book of Revelation, Daniel, book of Daniel, explicitly in chapters 7 through 12, though in many ways um, showing itself glimmers through other chapters within Daniel. So Revelation, Daniel, Zechariah, chapters 9 through 14. And then if you uh, attend here and you've been coming for the past several weeks, maybe your favorite preacher has been preaching to you from 2 Peter <laughs> chapter 3. There's obviously in 2 Peter chapter 3 glimpses of apocalyptic features in literature. Matthew 24, so Revelation, Daniel, Zechariah, 2 Peter, Matthew 24, Isaiah, different parts there, Mark, 2 Thessalonians, and I'm going to say these really fast, you don't have to write them down, Zephaniah, Ezekiel, 1 Thessalonians, Micah, Joel, and the reason why I say it like that is it, it actually seems like it's all over the place. So it's not just isolated for the end. But God is revealing what he's going to do in many ways from the beginning. And in some ways, we could even see glimpses of what God's going to do all the way back in Genesis 3, where he makes a promise to the man and the woman, and he even makes a promise to the devil himself about what ultimately is going to happen to him. So it's all over scripture, specifically and explicitly in different parts of it. And so now we come to the question, why in the world do we avoid it? So I'd love to hear from you. This is where you can say it out loud. You don't have to do it in orderly form. Why do you not read those passages as often as you would maybe Romans 5? Not that there's anything wrong with Romans 5. But it seems like it's all over Scripture. So why do we avoid it? It's confusing. Fear. Both it is scary and what if we're wrong? Good. What else? Misunderstanding. There was another one there. Yeah, how do you sift through what everyone has told you? But I'll use Randy's word, crazy interpretations. Randy, how long have you been coming to DSC? Don't answer. Unbelief. Great. Conflict. Okay, one more. Yeah? Doesn't matter. Don't matter. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I meant doesn't matter, but whatever. Don't matter. And then I'll put number eight. It doesn't seem evangelistic at first thought. You know, how would you go, uh, you take someone, hey, I'd love to have coffee with you and, and share you about what God's doing in my life or share with you. And let me take you to these horned beasts in Daniel that show themselves and, and they're about kingdoms unveiling themselves throughout the world. Yeah, it doesn't seem evangelistic at first thought or sight. Evangelistic. All right, 
Well, let me sum these up in three different ways. Why do we avoid it? This genre of scripture is really different. It's really different. By that, I mean we're unfamiliar with this type of language. We don't, we don't talk to each other in these kind of languages. If we have dreams of our own that seem like this, we certainly aren't going to tell anyone. <laughs> Unless we're trying to look for a laugh at the breakfast. Like, you wouldn't believe I was being chased by a shark in the front yard, and he ran out of grass to come and catch me. It's like, I'm not going to tell you about that. So we don't, we don't often think like apocalyptic literature, so it's different. The usage of this kind of language is unfamiliar to us. We don't often speak in symbols that are otherworldly, but we speak in symbols that, that kind of unite us here on this earth. Uh, one, one of the things that I would love to tell you is that when you think about reading apocalyptic literature, you use a different set of tools that you use elsewhere in the scriptures. So if you're going to go on an archaeological dig and you're going to find stuff in your front yard that generations before you left there for me, you to find, you're going to have different tools, you're going to dig in certain places, you're going to chart different things down, you're going to sift through dirt in a certain way, but you can do all this because you are not moving on top of the earth. You, you feel like you're stationarily doing these things. So all of the world isn't changing around you. But apocalyptic literature, when we find out what that seems like, or when we're digging into those scriptures, it's like we're trying to find our way when we're on a ship in a windy sea, and we're not necessarily great at reading the stars, and it's dark, and we don't actually know which way the wind is blowing, and we see ourselves adrift. Now, you can get out of that circumstance. You actually can use the stars to guide you on a ship. So I'm told my dad used to have a sailboat and would sail around all the time. My dad also used to be, or used to have a pilot's license where his business, so he'd fly around to different places on his own. And I remember flying with him one time. There are all these different instruments in front of him. It's like, what is that? And he goes, that's, that's to where if you're in fog and you can't see, this is how you know that you're level or, or if you're getting close to the ground. It's like, well, why don't you just look out the window? It's typically a good, like, I'm really close to the ground. because sometimes you can't see in front of you or behind you, and you have no idea how high or low you are. Sometimes you realize you're actually upside down flying. And so a lot of the times we feel ourselves flying upside down in apocalyptic literature. But God has given us tools within his word to see what he's doing. So it feels different. Second, it feels difficult. Mostly it feels difficult because we don't feel like we're doing a good enough job. You know, let's say you read the Bible in a year. And those last couple of days, December, when it's Christmas time and everyone's happy and you got what you wanted for Christmas and you're coming up to those final points in Revelation and you become discouraged because you go, I actually have no idea what I just read. I'm not used to it. And so you just move on. It is difficult. We feel like we're not doing a bad, or we feel like we're doing a bad job. We feel like this is a hard thing to command. We feel like we don't have enough command of the text where we can excitingly tell someone about it. And we don't like being confused. We like reading Romans 3, where it says that we're all sinners, and you go, I know that. I can hold on to that. I can point at someone else and say, you are too. And oftentimes, apocalyptic literature feels us, uh, leaving us like we're feeling in doubt or confused. So it's different, it's difficult, and lastly, it's divisive. Some people think it's not important, so they don't have much regard for it. Some people think that it's the most important thing in the world, and it's hard to almost communicate with either person on the importance of what is there in the apocalyptic literature, or some people maybe over-realize its importance, and it's the only thing that they can talk about. It's the only view of how they watch the news or how they interact with people. Um, but it's divisive. There have been, you know, myriads and myriads of expressions of what apocalyptic literature looks like. Maybe even in your own lives, in your own study, you've gone through several different kinds of interpretation. You, you once came to Revelation 5 and you go, I think it means this. And then 20 years later you go, I wonder if I got it wrong and I think it means that. And it's, so it becomes divisive within churches. It becomes divisive within relationships or within Bible studies. So we often avoid it. Briefly, I want to give you some overarching scaffolding. I don't know why I chose that phrase, but, but there's some kind of scaffolding, I think, that helps us when we approach this text, or presuppositions, that if we see this happening in Scripture, then that gives us some footing of how we can approach apocalyptic literature. So four things. One, the issue of the ages, 
so ages and ages, is essentially a spiritual battle between good and evil. You know, that, that's the history, I believe, that's been happening from the beginning in Genesis 3 all the way towards the end of our scriptures. There's this battle royale, spiritually, of good against evil. And it looks like good will win sometimes. And it looks like bad will win sometimes. But if we approach it with that concept, it helps us find our way a little bit more clearly. Number two, the present world is evil and without hope and can be remedied only by a sovereign divine intervention. So the earth is bad and all of its inhabitants are evil by nature. And we can't solve that by things of the earth or by an inner hope within us or a supernatural force within us, but only it can be remedied from a sovereign, divine, otherworldly intervention. So battle of good and evil, sovereign, divine intervention. Number three, within this scaffolding, the Lord's intervention will entail catastrophic events. That's clear throughout all scripture, Anytime the Lord intervenes in people's lives, it looks both catastrophic and, by His grace, very hopeful and full of joy. Most simply, you think of what it costs to conquer sin. Well, it cost one person his life. You think about what it costs to purify the earth from all the evilness. It looked like a total flood. Or you look at the end and it will look like a total fire, even though the Lord will rescue certain people. But... Number three, the Lord's intervention will entail catastrophic events. Number four, following the time of God's universal judgment, there will be a new final age of peace, prosperity, and righteousness. So following God's total or universal judgment, there will be a new age of peace and prosperity and righteousness. So that's the overarching scaffolding. I think when you, when you approach it with those things in mind, it at least in many ways calms you down and say, okay, what's happening? Well, I know that it takes the Lord intervening in our lives for, for good things to come about. I know that he's totally in charge. I know it will come with catastrophic events. And I know the ultimate aim is for peace and prosperity for his own glory. So why should we read it then? We talked about why we don't read it. I gave you some clarifying scaffolding remarks why should we read it? We'd love to hear from you and why we should read God's word. There's an obvious number one. Because it's God's word, right. So we should take what God gives us. We should read apocalyptic literature because it's God's word to us and for us. Ultimately, it's good. What else? Why should we read it? It's authoritative. Okay. Good. There was a quiet one over here. I'm sorry? Proclaim it so that we can use it and proclaim it. It's hard to proclaim God's goodness if you don't know it. It's good. Okay. Yeah within apocalyptic literature and also in other parts, we are blessed when we receive it, digest it, and apply it in our lives. Really good. Yeah? Yeah, God can prepare us with this word, so we'll talk about that in a little bit. Yeah? Gives us hope. Good. One more. It doesn't change. really good all right those are good why should we read it and know it i'll give you three examples or three categories there's a literary comparison or context here it's in the bible um, in many ways we should look at it because so it's in the bible number two under that subheading literary comparison um, we're actually we're actually more used to this kind of literature than we might give ourselves over to think uh, we're used to pictures meaning something versus just words. You know, I've heard it said before, and I live it fully. I love watching a movie that is based on a book before reading a book. Because in many ways, it, it shows me what's happening, 
I don't have to wait for the end, but I, I love seeing this stuff in action. So, well, I won't give you examples because it might offend some of you, but I love seeing movies that are based on a book and they go, I actually might read that book. So we're actually used to this more than we might give ourselves over to be. We're, we're used to pictures instead of words. It's more approachable than ever. Um, in, in fact, one of the most popular uh, tourist sites in New Mexico is Meow Wolf up in Santa Fe. It's like the weirdest thing you would ever see. But, but it's art in the form of images and symbols, and it's evocative, and it makes you, you feel things that maybe just a, a text message might not make you feel. Now, I don't, I don't like it, and it makes me feel uncomfortable, but lots of people go to see it. So it's, it's around us. So we shouldn't shy away from it thinking, well, people won't understand it or won't be around us. There's a literary comparison that we have here. Second, historical context. We see in our culture, in our day, that the church, the global church I'm thinking here, is, is being oppressed or is greatly under ungodly rule, greatly under persecution. We, we see that all around us. If you watch the news for five minutes, you'll see what's happening to Christians in Iran or, or even in other parts of New England where people are being shouted against or beaten against by what they believe. And, and that's not new. And we see that we can go to apocalyptic literature to see how can we live in the midst of uncertainty or upheaval. Um, this is where the church finds herself. Uh, so I believe that apocalyptic literature in many ways shows us where we are currently in God's historical context of where his people came from and are going. We see ourselves as exiles in many ways, waiting for this final redemption or this final consummation where God will ultimately destroy all evil and bring in a kingdom that only knows peace and prosperity and righteousness. Uh, historically, it helps us bring in the big picture of the scriptures. It's, it's sad if you read the Bible and ignore apocalyptic literature. You're missing so many great things, not just from a literary standpoint, but also from an inward hopeful standpoint. In the same way that if you're reading scripture but neglected the prophets or the history parts or the Pauline epistles, if you, if you take out pieces of God's word, you just miss a great deal. So third, there's a pastoral context. The intention of the writers or the revealers of apocalyptic literature were pastoral in nature. So these are, these are messages from God to his people to encourage them guide them, point them in a certain direction, remind them of who he is, even in the midst of total upheaval. So the intention of the writers is pastoral in context. It helps us bring focus. So secondly, in this, in this part, it, it helps us bring focus to the actual gospel itself, where the blessed, God's people, God's elect are in, in the cursed are not only out, but justice will rain down on them finally and fully. So it, it's easy to see the gospel implications from texts within apocalyptic literature. And then finally, it's been said, and I've said it maybe twice now, it brings hope in upheaval and hope in compromise. So it reminds or, or it points a finger at those who are compromising their faith or compromising their walk, that judgment is real, and so is God's righteousness, and so is God's offer of grace and his offer of security. But it also reminds or brings encouragement to those who are continually feeling like they're being pressed up against a wall and they can't fight anymore. Whether you see John secluded on an island or Daniel going through the things that Daniel has gone through, where these words pastor their souls. All right, so quickly, some interpretative guidelines. Ryan will get more fully into some of these things, or he'll flesh out a ton of these things more. Um, I just want to give you some, some key words. First, acquaint yourself with the characteristics of apocalyptic literature. So there are unique things that we can see in this literature that if we focus on those and use them like you would use a tool to build a house, um, it, it really helps you not only understand the text, but but love the text, and Ryan will talk about those more. But acquaint yourself 
with the tools that Ryan is going to tell you in a little bit. Number two, note the, note the setting in the passage, the setting of the passage, both in its historical dimension, but also within its contextual aim. So remind yourself of the setting, but don't just remind yourself of the setting. Actually press in and find out as much as you can about the setting of these specific texts. You know, when, when Jesus is saying something that seems apocalyptic and looks apocalyptic, who is he talking to? Why is he talking to them with this language? What is he trying to show? Where is he? Find as much as you can about that. Um, and then third, understand the context. So that was a little bit number two, but understand the context. What's before these texts? What's after these texts? What's changing within this text? So to use an example, Revelation 7. If you just turn to Revelation 7. Revelation 7 says, After this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, and no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. And then I saw another angel descending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God, and he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. And then he lists off that there were 12,000 from the tribe of Judah, Reuben, Gad, Asher, Naphtali, Manasseh, Simeon, Levi, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, and Benjamin. 12,000 from each were sealed. Now when you look at this, if this is where you are in your yearly Bible reading, you look at this and go, oh, I can't wait till breakfast because I have no idea what this is talking about. Or you might try to too quickly apply it to your life and look at things like dating, the actual time on a calendar, or you look at stuff and go, well, it seems to talk about the environment, so maybe this is an environmental text where it's telling us what we should do with God's creation, or, or maybe this will help us determine my political view on geopolitical Middle Eastern politics, that there's something unique there about these things. So when I watch CNN, I can actually decipher in a totally different way than I ever had before. Or finally, you might go and go, I have an answer. So when a Jehovah's Witness comes to my door and they're professing that they're of the 144,000 and I actually have something to talk to them about. But what we see here, if we focus on context, we see that seals are happening, not just in this text, but also in the text before it. We see that there's serious judgment playing out in chapter 6, and it seems to be getting worse. But then something changes. People are called out, and at the end of chapter 6, in verse 17, it says, For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? And then he goes to a new vision after this. I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth. So we see these revelations or visions unfolding that may not make sense on a horizontal timeline, but God is revealing certain things to us again and again through his witness, John, where these angels are standing multi-ethnic as it goes on in verse 9 of chapter 7 and a multitude standing for worship. So there's relationship happening between the 144,000 of something that's being revealed that has been revealed already and something that will be revealed starting in verse 9. So after I looked. And so all this is to say that context is incredibly important in what we do with God's word, not only so that we can apply it quickly, but context is important so that we can apply stuff correctly. So, note the context, note the setting. Fourthly, distinguish carefully the use of symbols and themes, figures of speech from their standard literal sense. So Ryan will go into these kinds of things briefly later. But distinguish carefully. Determine, fifthly, determine the author's purpose for using apocalyptic features. So who wrote it? Who's he writing to? Why is he writing to them? Again, what's the, what's the context or the setting for 
the people who would receive the prophet Daniel's words? Why would God give that to them? Or people who would receive the book of Revelation? And then sixth, so determine the author's purpose for using these features. But then sixth, find application for today. Not just application for 20 years from now. Or if I'm going to live this long, then I can, I can actually heed God's word. I remember when I was young, and I was, well, I was probably 12 or 13, so I was somewhat getting better at baseball, so I could actually catch or throw. So you have great, great ideas in mind. And I just thought, man, I would love for the Lord to come back after I win a World Series for the Yankees. That would be great. And then if that happens, then I'm ready to actually take this word and apply it to my life for what it's supposed to be. So God is speaking to us today and these words, though it seems like they are about something far from now, actually can rule over your life even today. So find application for today, not for the possible tomorrow. So the genre is filled with present day application for Christian living all over the place. Many of us, or unlike many of us, the apostles managed to employ apocalyptic literature or understanding without attending arguments or controversies that mark some of our understanding of it today. You know, when the apostles would hear Jesus speak and interpret all of the scriptures, they were hearing it in such a way that they weren't debating on certain things about what will happen, when will it happen, what will it look like? Now, in part, because they were looking at the Son of God, right? But they were, they were hearing him for as he was speaking to him, that, that he was the conquering hero that we see all over the text. So remind yourself that when you receive these words in apocalyptic literature, they can be applied today, and they don't have to divide you from other Christians because all Christians should be looking at them according to how they're written. So we see this in Peter, or in 2 Peter. Peter wasn't concerned when Christ would return, he was contending for what Christians should live like until Christ returned. So there's great emphasis on this is going to happen. And so you must live in a certain way because it's going to happen. So when we aim to understand apocalyptic literature, do we aim for the now instead of the possible tomorrow? If G, I'm, uh, there's a quote, I don't know it definitely, but... Someone asked Charles Spurgeon, how would he preach if he knew that Jesus, Charles Spurgeon is a, is a preacher from 200 years ago in London, called the Prince of Preachers. He would, he would speak to 10,000 people almost every Sunday. And someone asked him, what, how would you preach if you knew that Jesus was going to come back tonight? And he said, I would just keep on preaching the same thing until he comes. So how would we live differently if we knew that Jesus was going to come back in the middle of your kid's school year? You know, when they come home and they don't want to do stuff or you don't want to do stuff, the scriptures are saying we should live because God is going to come back and we should live in a certain way. So really briefly, some history. Um, I have a subheading that just says history is our friend. Uh, I wrote that when I was feeling happy at the time. Just remind yourself that, that history is your friend. It is, it is okay to understand what other people are have gone through or are going through. And when we look at history within the context of the scripture, oftentimes we see that at the beginning, if you use the study Bible, there's an intro mostly to every book of the Bible. And we go over that instead of actually honing in on it and seeing what were these people going through that made this book so significant to them that in God's perfect timing, he had people write to certain people with a certain way and that he's still speaking to us through his word. Um, you need to remember that apocalyptic literature is, literature is not just horizontal in orientation, but it's also otherworldly in presentation. So you have to get used to the writer's use of language that consistently collapses time and within time and time again. But you also have to remember that within these otherworldly features, the people who are receiving this are within a certain period of time. So briefly on Daniel, Daniel is a classic example of apocalyptic literature, and it happens within the last days of Judah, where Daniel was born during the last days of the kingdom that seemed that it would have no end. Josiah was reigning at the time of Daniel's birth, 
and over a daytime soap opera series of events with power transferring to a brother and then a coup d'etat and then another transfer and another coup d'etat and more transfers, we finally get down to Nebuchadnezzar. And then after that, it goes on to other kings. So political upheaval, physical upheaval in this Babylonian world. And at the time, Daniel and his friends were taken into captivity during this time of crisis. So eventually, the new king also defied Babylonian authority, and Nebuchadnezzar determined to put an end to this rebellion that was happening in this kingdom. And he laid siege to Jerusalem somewhere around 588 B.C. and succeeded in capturing it just two years later. Then the final destruction of Jerusalem began in 586 B.C. So all that to say, not all was quiet on the Western Front as Daniel would have lived through it. Daniel therefore lived through the reign of five Judean monarchs and saw the fall of a nation and the destruction of Jerusalem. And this was also in a period of intense prophetic activity. So God was very active in revealing prophetic things to his people in the midst of worldly upheaval. Jeremiah was preaching in Jerusalem. Daniel and Ezekiel would have heard possibly Jeremiah's preaching or would have received word of it. Jeremiah's influence is evident in Ezekiel's writings and even in some ways in Daniel's language. Now, the book of Daniel was written in two different languages, both Aramaic and also Hebrew. And he lived through this entire period, uh, which was secured by Nebuchadnezzar's victory over the Egyptians. Nebuchadnezzar was one of the greatest rulers of this period and maybe in some ways you could say in world history. He was one of the most competent monarchs of ancient times and he brought Babylon to a peak of economic affluence and political power. So he plays a a huge part in biblical history. So when we understand the Bible or when we want to understand the Bible, we can't ignore characters like Nebuchadnezzar and go, it's just, you know, someone who is in charge at the time. There are things that that God not only orchestrates, but is using to influence how God's revelation, how he desires his revelation to unfold. This period of time is crucial in the history of God's people, stretching from the beginning of the Babylonian encroachment into Judah and covering the time of destruction of Jerusalem to the end of the exile. So the book has its foundation in events and visions that occur within the 6th century B.C., The book was written to encourage those during those times of oppression and persecution. Its stories and visions, we must remind ourselves, show that it is possible not only to survive, but to thrive spiritually as a faithful follower of God under most difficult circumstances and conditions. While not every Christian today will face what Daniel and his cohorts faced, we do Many Christians, so I shouldn't say we, I don't certainly live like they live there, but many Christians do live in a culture that is toxic or hostile to the faith. And this book is a reminder that God is not only in control, but what we'll see later, that he's not only in control over all things, but that he will explicitly reveal himself to send his son to die on a cross to conquer sin to be raised to show the power over sin and to rule and reign forever and ever. So some context of Daniel there. Now some historical context of the book of Revelation. The book was written, most people believe, towards the close of the first century with the empire beginning to rain down on those who would receive its word. It's unlikely that the setting of when the book starts is the climax of persecution against Christians, but it is the start of what became a horrifying and awful raining down of unjust judgment on people who would believe in Jesus as their Savior. So just there, we are reminded that God often reveals himself, maybe in ways that we wouldn't choose for ourselves, so he didn't give us a a guidebook or a cookbook on how to obey him and follow him, but he gave this in many ways, supernatural vision 
of how these Christians can survive and thrive when the world is going against them. So the emperor at the time was more insistent on pressing his claims to divinity than any other of his predecessors. He was wanting everyone to see him as the true king, as the divine king, as the ruler of everything. He even had people call him Lord and Savior more than any other ruler at the time, which obviously echoes who we know of who would actually outlast this ruler. It's been said that Revelation is a trumpet call to the faith. The book was written to strengthen the faith and courage of John's fellow believers in Christ, to nerve them for battle with anti-Christian forces in the world, and to help them bear witness to the one true Lord and Savior of the world. It's addressed to seven churches named in the first chapter, and on through a couple more chapters, and John presents the, the risen Christ as addressing these churches in their culture. And though these churches seem small or maybe insignificant in how we would view big and powerful and influential churches, these churches were struggling against mounting persecution. And through their steadfastness and their receiving of God's word, they give hope to other churches who would come after them. And John, John shows them the world as it really is, where it seems to be awful, but the Lord is still reigning and ruling. So Revelation's theological message challenges readers to repent and resist of worldly compromise and fleshly desires, spiritual complacency, and false teaching. And it also encourages and strengthens believers to hold fast to their testimony about who Jesus is, to hold fast to, to be steadfast while they're enduring trials and to be resilient when they hope for God's present and future reign on the earth. So that's some history on Daniel and Revelation. I give those because they're the most, well, they're the, the biggest or most comprehensive um, literatures that we have on apocalyptic literature. So finally, I want to give you some tips on handling these things. So we talked about why we don't read it much. We talked about why we should read it a lot. And now let me give you some tips on handling it. First, I want to give you some negatives, so some don'ts. Don't be reductionistic. You've got to remember that apocalyptic literature shows itself like fine art would show itself. And if you take uh, you know, one, of the, one of the greatest artists of a generation ago, Bob Ross, right, where he's painting with strokes, and you might watch him paint over again, and he's, he's marking these things. It's some of the most soothing television, and I don't even, I have no understanding of art. I have no understanding of how to appreciate it, but at the end, you go, I don't know how you got there, but that is a spectacular picture. Now, if he painted something like a house, you wouldn't then bring that portrait into an engineering office or an architect's office and say, I want you to look at how this developed, and I want you to build something like it or things that we see in the, in the National Gallery of Art, or things that we might see in other countries in their forms of art, we wouldn't take those and have them be literally interpreted or literally built. You know, if you were to ever try to draw what is presented in Revelation 1 or Ezekiel 1, one, you're bordering on drawing God, and that's not good, but also your picture would be a mess. How do you make sense of something that is not meant to be a, a literal architectural interpretation of how God wants to reveal himself. But, so don't be reductionistic. Don't take fine art and try to put it in an architect's office. Keep it in the gallery and marvel at what it is. In many ways, it, it's a motive in that it creates these feelings of, of hope in his triumph or these feelings of awe and wonder of his glory and let those pictures stand for what they are to us. They're supposed to captivate us and make us be in awe at who he is. Don't be afraid. So second, don't be reductionistic, but also don't be afraid about ambiguity or fog. Sometimes you'll read things and, and it just won't seem clear. So don't be afraid of that, but just keep looking at it. Keep staring at things and wait on explanations both around that text and within, its text, within that text. You might look, look at something on a foggy day 
Maybe you're driving and, and you, don't, you know that something's there that kind of looks like headlights and, and over time it seems like it's clearing up to where that, that is a car coming right at me. I should move. And in many ways, books like Revelation show itself in that way. So don't be afraid just because it seems foggy at the beginning. Let it show itself more clearly because it does show itself more clearly over time. Don't over, so third, don't overemphasize what's not emphasized. Don't spend so much time looking at every detail. So there's, there's a passage within Daniel where there's this bad guy. That's my bad guy picture. And he has horns, horns that come out of horns. And I've heard a sermon before where the point was you might find yourself in the midst of this second and third horn. And the Lord wants you to repent. But while you're there, remind yourself of what terrible things will happen happen if you find yourself in between the third and the fourth horn. And you're going, what are you talking about? I mean, move on from this. Those specific things are not what's emphasized in the text. In many ways, we look at this like you might look at uh, Shredder and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and you see Shredder and, and more than understanding how his armor is made or what's on his helmet you recognize him rightly as a bad dude so when these monsters show themselves let the interpreters or let the writers show themselves for what they are there's good and evil happening now there are some things that are amazing when we see those so Ryan will talk about symbols in a minute where we might see things like stones and we go all right, I don't want to spend all day on stones, but if you spend a little bit of time on stones within Scripture, because you go, man, this is said a lot in all over Scripture, you start to see that there's more behind this. So don't overemphasize what's underemphasized within the text. And then the fourth in this negative, don't confuse Christ's work. So I'll get into this in the third lecture. Too often we see apocalyptic literature about what is going to come. But within the scriptures, we need to be reminded that his incarnation meant something. His death and resurrection meant something. His ascension and rule and reign now means something. And certainly his return will mean something. So don't just flatten those out and say, well, whenever the text seems to be talking about Jesus, it's only talking about Jesus in a certain way. There are other things that Jesus presents himself to be. And so we, we, we try to see those most clearly through the text, and we'll get into that later on. So those are four negative things. A couple of positive things. One, put in the effort to understand history and context. Don't leave them behind. Do the slow work of reading what God has given us. They aren't just illusions, but clues to the gravity of the text. You know, it's like if you've ever been to a murder mystery dinner and people dress up in different characters or your character, your character has a background to it that actually helps out the mystery unfold. You're going to lose the the context if you just ignore who everyone is in that capacity. So when you have these texts, put in the effort to understand the history and the context. Number two, put in the effort to see symbols. Try to get really, really good at this. Symbols speak of something with terms that suggest something else. Some of the ways of my failure, I, I think I might know uh, symbolic things about politics or history more than I might quickly recognize things within the Bible. So if someone says something, you go, I actually feel like Richard Nixon said the same thing, and that didn't work out for him. It, and we, we do this all the time, whether it's in sports, where someone reminds us of Reggie Jackson. Or we do this in the office where you, you're like a boss that I used to have. Do we have those same instincts within the scripture where we might see something in Matthew and go, I recognize a psalm within those words. Or you're reading Daniel and you go, actually, I remember later on in the testimony of scripture that that, that seems to be explained. So become so familiar with the text that scriptures don't surprise you, but you start seeing them all over the place in apocalyptic literature. Number three, remember Genesis 3, the promise and the curses. The promise that the serpent's head would be crushed 
and his heel would be nicked. And then see that play itself out through the end. Number four, we have two more. Remember the original reader's receptive joy. Remember the original reader's receptive joy. What they would have felt like. How they would have received a book or a letter titled The Revelation from John, an apostle that they would have known. How how much hope that would have given them as they would have seen things. or, Or Daniel as it would have been read later on. These divinely inspired words are for God's people to have hope in God when they certainly can have hope in nothing else. And remember what it must have felt like in that Babylonian time or that Greco-Roman time to be, to be reminded in the midst where people are being set on fire for their faith or put on crosses outside of a city where the king is coming back and he's coming back like a lion. And lions are kings of the jungle what it must have felt like. And then finally, I got this from Doug Wilson, every good story has two things happening. A dragon's being slayed and a girl's being get, gotten. So a prince will come in when a girl, when a, when a bride is suffering and he slays the dragon and he gets his own bride. And that's ultimately what we see play out in scripture where our king returns and slays the beast and he gets his people. We see them as God's people, the church. So that is an attempt at an introduction of apocalyptic literature really briefly. Any questions on some of these? Let me pray, and then we'll take a transition break, not a big break, then we'll start the second one. Father, thank you for your word that you give us. We pray that you would fill us with your spirit in such a way that we can use your teaching for the betterment of your church, for the glory of your son, for the faith that grows within us by understanding who you are. We pray that you would bless our time, that you would encourage our time to go to your book and read about how glorious and good you are and what you promised to do for your people and how we can trust and hope in that. We pray this in the power and in the name of Jesus. Amen.